1: 4.6 billion.
0: The Earth forms.
1: Cambrian. 542 million. Complex life explodes. Permian Triassic. 251 million.
2: 90% of species
1: die. Cretaceous Tertiary. 65 million.
0: Meteor kills the dinosaurs.
1: 55 million. Primates appear. 2.3 million. Pleistocene. 200,000. Humans. 20,000.
0: Agricultural
1: 250.
3: revolution. Industrial revolution.
1: 60. Great animals. acceleration. The
3: Anthropocene.
0: Welcome to Generation Anthropocene, where we feature stories and conversations about planetary change. I'm Leslie Chang. Today on the show, we're featuring a conversation with environmental journalist Andy Revkin. Stay tuned afterwards for a short special segment about a new book on the Anthropocene by David Biello titled The Unnatural World. Our first story is with Andy Revkin. He's an award-winning journalist who has been writing about environmental issues for more than three decades. For the past several years, Andy has written the popular New York Times blog Dot Earth. And as it turns out, he's also in the Anthropocene Working Group. In addition, he co-hosts the podcast Warm Regards, which tackles climate change from a lot of different angles. Andy happened to be in the Bay Area a few weeks ago, so our producer, Mike Osborne, took the opportunity to meet up with him. They actually recorded this a few days before Andy took a new position writing for ProPublica. So here is Mike and Andy's conversation.
4: I am Andrew Revkin. I have been writing for The New York Times in one way or another for 20 years since 2010, uh, on a freelance basis, writing my blog, .earth, which got started when I was still a news reporter at the Times, as a way to explore this question of the Anthropocene, which is, how do, we, how do we navigate the next 100 years without totally screwing up? And that's a question that's really hard to answer in a standard newspaper article.
2: How do we not screw up the planet for the yeah, next 100 years? Yeah, because
4: it's, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a little amorphous. It's basically every question. Is, it's questions like, how, how much nature is enough? That's, you know, that's a tough question. But that's a question we have to answer going forward. How much warming is too much? It's not as simplistic as the number two degrees or 1.5. It depends on where you are in the world. It depends on your stage of development. I've been teaching this past six years also after I left the staff of the New York Times at Pace University. Mm But my life is an open book going forward in terms of I'm always trying to figure out. Actually, the older you get, the more work you put into the question of how do I want to spend my time? What's the best use of the time I have left? Huh. And uh, i turned 60 this year, and so you definitely look, you know, we always, we're juggling those questions at every stage of life. But as you get older, they get more intense because you realize your life is a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And some of it will sort of transmute into someone else's story going forward, whether it's a student or a offspring or society at large. And um, those are all, you know, again, it's kind of like, those big questions of navigating the Anthropocene, navigating a life, is, uh, becomes more and, more and more intense the further you get into it.
2: That got big and philosophical really quick. That's awesome. I guess it did. Yeah. Well, I've been yeah. thinking a lot about that stuff lately. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, mean, I would imagine the number 60 kind of looms large in your head. Yeah, I mean, that's a, in one yeah. way, it's just another day, but like, okay, 60, i got to get your head around that.
4: Yeah, well, in 2011, um, I had a stroke.
2: Yeah, I heard about
4: that. Yeah, which definitely, and I, the first piece I did while I was in the hospital uh, was uh, on <laughs> sustainability. I think the first line was, you know, you can't focus on sustaining the planet unless you sustain yourself first. And that was my first real sort of encounter with uh, mortality. And we tend to tamp those things down and then, hello. Yeah, wow. <laughs> this so is I- your brain talking. <laughs> it just reminds you, we, we mostly wall off mortality. Hmm. And uh, and we mostly wall off things like climate change because they're so big and momentous. And so much of what's happening with climate change is out of our control, including the world's control it's not it's not just a, it's not just a sense of a, each person having limited power um, so much of it as i've learned through a lot of reporting is just a f- fundamental for the moment our potency has gotten way out in front of our awareness of um, not just the impacts of these things on long time scales but our, our awareness of our own limitations as, yeah. as human beings, you know, and how we perceive risk yeah. and all that stuff.
2: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I mean, the, the sort of the, the perceptual and emotional experience of climate change is very, um, it's very difficult to internalize, maybe impossible. I've, I've wondered about that. I want to get into that in a sec. Um, but I'd like to back up and actually sort of learn how you uh, got into environmental reporting in the first place. I mean, you're sure. from Rhode Island, right?
4: Yeah. Uh, well, Rhode Island is the the ocean state, um, it's really easy to get to the beach and get in the ocean. And I grew up with um, Jacques Cousteau on TV with his French accent and his red beret. They would stick a camera underwater and go ooh la!" la. And you know, that, to me, that was like incredibly exciting. But then in Rhode Island, I had the capacity to put on a mask and snorkel. My the one bar mitzvah present I remember profoundly always was this family gave me a U.S. diver's mask and snorkel, and that was. Jacques Cousteau's company, because he, he invented the co-invented the uh, regulator for scuba, mm. and uh, and just the fact that I now had his gear and could kind of go stick my head underwater, and, and I could you know I saw amazing things right away like um, um, a baby lobster one day you, you know I literally would get into kind of a hypnotic state underwater and yeah. so I wanted to be a marine biologist and I, I ended up at Brown University the local school, major in biology. Thought about medical school for like a year, and then but then organic chemistry sort of said you will not be a doctor, right. and uh, and the and then I was getting out and not quite sure what to do, and um, this is where the journalism starts to come in to play. I got this traveling fellowship that they had; three students a year had the chance to get a go somewhere in the world and do something weird. And my thing, my proposal, which I cobbled together very quickly, was to study men's relationship to the sea and to go to three island communities around the world and um, see if there are common elements when, when you it's just you and the sea, you know. Mm. And it was a very romantic idea, and the committee obviously liked it. And I had um, researched one particular place in depth um, uh, in French Polynesia. So here I am, you know, graduated. This is like 1978. That fall, I went to French Polynesia. I went to this little tiny village at the end of this road on... Um, an island, uh, Ryotea, in French Polynesia. It was an amazing experience. Um, Coral splendor, simple life, you know, family. You get up before dawn, the kids would wash and get ready for school. Um, No electricity, except the Chinese family that owned the store in the village had electricity. And we would go um, prepare the soil up on the volcanic slope, for uh, planting the sweet potatoes and, you know, go fishing at night and ca- learn how to catch the bait fish to catch the big fish. And, you know, so That's it like was like... A storybook, yeah. It was really amazing. Uh, how long were you there for? Uh, I was there for about t- two months. And, That's
2: long enough to kind of immerse.
4: Oh, yeah. And and uh, to slow down. And for me, you know, suburbanite from New England, it was just like, this is paradise, right? Um, then I migrated further west to Fiji, New Caledonia. I went down to New Zealand. But here's what really happened. Uh... I was wandering the docks, and there was a sign in Auckland on the bulletin board. uh, It said, crew wanted, yacht wanderlust, inquire Marsden Wharf. And and so I wandered down there, and there was this boat, and the guy, the skipper on the boat was from Santa Cruz, Lon Bubeck. First mate was also from Santa Cruz, uh, Fuzz Ward, and the owner wasn't around at that time.
2: Lon uh, Bubeck and Fuzz Ward? Yeah. Those are great names. Yeah, Yeah, (laughs) and they they
4: were like um, hippies. With, with skills yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> and and uh, they were they were taking the boat for the owner around the world uh, the boat was built in Sacramento very funky and I got signed on as first mate basically because I'd sailed before <laughs> <laughs> you know and uh I wasn't being paid but I wasn't it wasn't costing me anything and we were going to sail around the world so so I joined the crew of the sailboat I sent a letter to my parents and I sent a letter to um Brown University, saying, well, I'm going to be studying man's relationship to the sea, but in a, in a more up-close way. Yeah, this
2: time on a boat. Yeah, yeah.
4: and we sailed off. And uh, so then I was uh, basically on that boat for almost a year and a half. We sailed two-thirds of the way around the world. Holy cow. Fifteen countries, 17,000 miles. I left the boat in what's in, what was then Yugoslavia in 1980. And that trip made me want to be a journalist and, yeah. and to get back to the real world. And I'd seen things, I'd photographed... Fascinating and troubling things uh, in Djibouti, the base of the Red Sea. We after we crossed the um, Western Indian Ocean from Maldives. I was, I was in the Maldives, which now it. are known as the poster child for sinking islands. Right, but in Djibouti there was this pile of uh, at a tobacco shop on a corner. There was a pile of leopard skins for sale, like there d- several dozen leopard skins. And uh, you know, I took this picture recently. That was my first real sort of integrated notion of something being unsustainable. <laughs> you know, I was 1980, and, and I just, again, those kinds of things fix, started fixating me and spent a little time trying to figure out what to do and ended up at journalism school. Um, science journalism in the early 80s was kind of a booming Actual industry, you know, it was a promising way to make a living.
2: I'm jealous. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I know.
4: You know, it's not it, the space shuttle was ascendant. This, the personal computer, you know, it was it was it was a go go time for science writing. Yeah, and I got hired. Um, my first job after journalism school was taking a sailboat along the New England coast for the summer, writing stories about the New England coast for a boating magazine. Wow. So so I drew on that experience there, but I ended up at Science Digest magazine in uh, 1983. And kind of a copy editing job, you know, and making minimal money. But the the editor-in-chief at the time, uh, Scott DeGarmo, he let me start reporting some feature stories uh, right away. And that got me going. My first magazine feature came out in 1983, won uh, an Investigative Reporters and Editors Award. Wow. What was that about? Paraquat, the uh, herbicide, the weed killer paraquat, which I had stumbled into as a killing a lot of people it's a brown liquid it was often stored improperly and people would drink it accidentally or in some cases drink it intentionally as a suicide means of suicide and this is before the internet you know i, I sort of stumbled into the, some of these hints that there was a problem here and i had to i spent weeks of spare time while i was copy editing other people's articles you know calling the the phoning the thailand's um you know, health department, saying, so how many deaths have you seen there from Paraquat poisoning? And then uh, phoning the one in India and phoning the one in Kenya. And, you know, over time I had assembled um, enough evidence there were a 1,000 or 2 deaths a year worldwide um, from this. um, And, you know, where's the industry's responsibility to make sure something stays labeled? So it ended up being a really, really interesting article. And and that led me, you know, launched my um, writing career. And then climate came just two, late, two, two years later, 1985, my first big story on climate change. So
2: I want to ask about that. I mean, you know, as a uh, as a former grad student, as a recovering scientist, um, I, uh, you know, you, you hear about uh, the history of, of people... Um, you know, sort of wrestling with some of the questions in the 60s and 70s about, uh, you know, the the oncoming ice age. And then, uh, and you know, you also hear about Arenas and all these people who have known about the effect of um, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases going back for a long, long way. Sure. In terms of the sort of science journalism community, uh, when when did awareness that, like, oh, we've got a, a big issue that, that's sort of not out there, like, when did you start talking with colleagues, not necessarily other scientists, but um, I'm, I'm kind of curious, because Because I know, you know, eventually we get James Hansen testifying before Congress in whatever it was, 1989. Um, 88,
4: 88,
2: yeah. 88, is that what it was? Yeah. But in the years leading up to that, I'm kind of curious about the culture, the conversation, how much people knew. And uh, does that question make sense?
4: Yeah, yeah. Uh, The Times, the New York Times had already written about it off and on for, for quite a while. I, the, the first well I recently did a piece on dot Earth going back you know 100 years you can find newspaper articles from 1912 that really crystallized the idea. Saw that as idea. you were saying but but um, I think for, for journalism it, it really was around 88 when it became a, a big story and it was partially Jim Hansen Yellowstone had been on fire. there was a heat wave and you know record high temperatures in parts of Europe and North America. So everything was kind of um, coalescing to create that moment. Um, But 88 was the year, you know, for everybody in a way.
2: I mean, do you remember a moment where you sort of took in the magnitude of the problem, right? Where you sort of uh, thought about all the players? Oh, yeah. It was
4: that that year because um, uh, by that time, uh, you know, all of this was getting pretty consequential. There There was really strange questions emerging. You know, for, for Russia, for the Soviet Union at that time, and for Maldives, 1,200 atolls in you know, these low, sandy coral islands in the Indian Ocean. And the question of global warming was a very different question. Mm-hmm. Early 88, before Hansen's testimony and that kind of thing, they had the first international conference on the changing atmosphere. And here's this guy, Hussein Monikfan, who was the uh, ambassador plenipotentiary to the UN from Maldives. And he just looked like a little lost lamb at this meeting. I, I remember having that feeling. He's wandering around, you know, all these big countries are talking about big things. And, and he was wondering whether they're going to be around for much longer. You know, I think back sometimes, how in the world could I have spent so much of my life writing about this, this the worst possible story right. in many ways? You know, it's like, yeah. there's no clear villains and heroes. There are some, but they're not the, they don't solve the problem. Yeah. So it's the worst possible story, literally. It's the hardest story to tell in, in a traditional journalistic frame. And how could I do this for this long? And the, and the reason is it's it, the variegation and the depth and the profundity of it are really f- profoundly interesting. Yeah, You yeah. know, it's like if you're on a slowly sinking ship, it gets your attention.
2: Yeah, yeah, and, and the, the pace of descent, you can keep yeah, up with Yeah, and,
4: and I just, um, for whatever reason, I've just um, been kind of stuck with it ever since. It's like that. Godfather movie where Al Pacino's like... keep so- wanting to get out and they, yeah, keep, and they, suck- they keep sucking, <laughs> they keep me, sucking back me back in. Me back in. It's I, like it I've keeps never seen the movie. I only know yeah, but there's point. that scene where it keeps <laughs> yeah. sucking. It keeps pulling me back in, you know. And, and uh, you know, here it is a lot of years later. It's still pulling me back in.
2: Yeah, wow. That's, uh, I mean, so part of the reason I ask about that question of, uh, you know, internalizing the magnitude of it and, and some of the history here is because... Um, Actually, this is going to sound like a little bit of a funny question and maybe a little devil's advocate. But, um, you know, do you believe that climate change is the most pressing problem facing the world today?
4: No. Oh. Climate change is a symptom of a much more profound story, which is this sort of halting coming of age of a young species on a finite planet. It's like, you know, if a person is running a fever... The fever isn't the story, right?
0: right?
4: The fever is a symptom of some dysfunction, some physiological imbalance. And to me, uh, until we get to the deeper questions related to why it's hard for us to address this problem, and as I've written recently, why there you know why there is no we on planet Earth. Yeah. There, you know, if you're living in the one of the slums I visited in Nairobi um, early this year. Your energy and climate priorities are not the same as if you're living in Palo Alto. Right. And and when you're poor, you have no interest in the future. You're, you're all about today. Mm. Uh, so, the, so that was a learning moment for me. Uh, I, don't, I can't remember how many stories I've written with the word we in them. Yeah. Uh, so um, to me, grappling with that bigger story, I, I wrote a piece like um, – I think the title was "Puberty on the Scale of a Planet." <laughs> you know?
2: It's a good title.
4: Well, and I think that's where we're, you know we're kind of going through puberty on the scale of a planet, in the sense that it's
2: awkward. Uh, warmth where yeah, there a, didn't a, used to be warmth, and <laughs> yeah,
4: fossil fuels are like testosterone. Or, a, yeah. but here we are. You know, we've been plunked on this planet. We've been burning things for for a long time and then we stumbled into fossil fuels and like oh wow this is really cool you know yeah it's it very, like a hormone very dense you know, you know especially oh, gasoline is a, awesome yeah. you know portable a lot of power density and trying to replicate that in batteries as Elon Musk has even said is really hard so so it's like and we've got all these toys and so we're seduced by all that power and technology and those who don't have that the even a tenth of that capacity you know the poor rural uh or urbanizing Indian poor, you know they need to think they need more energy more than they need to worry about global warming. So it's like those you're not we're, we we right. <laughs> are not going to address the the global warming fun problem until we look at those deeper things. So that when I say it's not the most important thing, that's what I mean. Yeah, I, I, mean, I feel strongly about
2: it. Yeah, yeah, no, no. Well, and that makes sense that there's that there's a deeper disease of some sort um, or or condition
4: condition. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. Um, uh, yeah, right. I didn't I didn't mean to be prescriptive. No, no, no. Uh,
4: well, you know, and again, some of us are, you know, there are people who wantonly are living lives of excess, and there are people who are trying hard to figure out how not to do that. So it's not like there's any we there either. You know, there is There is a disease-ish aspect to some of this in the sense that, uh, I don't know.
2: Greed run amok or something like yeah, that. And yeah, I
4: suppose you could say it's like there's still some who are so focused on uh, financial um, wealth that they're willing to inoculate people with the disease, right. meaning hyperconsumption. Right. And, uh,
2: well, okay, but uh, e- even just sticking with that, is it fair then to, if there is a deeper condition that needs addressing, that the most acute symptom is this fever? Global
4: warming. Well, I yeah, get that plus biological disruption. which Sure. Is happening, well, uh, concurrently uh, and interrelated. related and is and is devastating. Uh, if. You, if you just look at the amphibian biota of Central America, and, and what's happening there is all a function of moving fungi around, uh, far more than it's a function of climate change and that kind of thing.
2: I think where I'm where I'm heading with this Maybe. is um, sometimes I feel like uh, the audience for this show is really uh, people who. And accept the basic tenets of the science, that we have to worry about climate change, but don't know what to make of it. And one of my starting points for trying to address that fear and concern is to think critically about why climate is important for reasons that we don't necessarily understand. Because I'm not sure we've actually done that job. I'm not sure the scientific community or the environmental journalism community has really sort of said, look, this is why we need to worry about climate. I mean, forget yeah, climate yeah, yeah. change. Yeah,
4: well, well, in fact you could see scenarios where we don't need to worry about it. If we become rich and small and technologically able, we can live lives like I saw in Singapore this year, uh, where, where they've got these gardens by the bay. It's this bizarre um, giant botanical garden thing with the world's large, I think they're the world's largest enclosed glass domes. And there's a Mediterranean one. So you can go there and look at olive trees and the temperature in this dome is like 68 degrees and the air is dry and you're like, few miles from the equator and then next door you can go into the cloud forest dome and it's like being in a museum of climates hmm. and and then if you go to uh so many cities in this uh, in the world now where you're um you hardly ever have to step outside I wrote a piece uh, a few years back on uh, our increasing insulation from the climate system. So one approach is to just insulate ourselves from climate, and uh, so that could—I mean—you could—you have, have to kind of go to the extreme of saying there's a possibility of just where it really, literally, doesn't matter. Right. I mean, that's even beyond like the adaptation. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's that, where you just seal it off, and um, but of course it matters hugely, uh, especially when you bring into play the fact that there's no we that that, uh, if you live in a semi-tropical area with a lot of rain-fed agriculture right now, that even today's climate extremes are are a potent um, existential threat. So climate matters hugely. Um, What I've been trying to get some... (laughs) There's some resistance, I've found, among uh, environmentalists particularly, to acknowledging that garden variety, climate hazard, is a profound real-time issue Far more than climate change is uh, right now, and even through till 2050 in some parts of the world. Really interesting paper by Tim Shanahan at all. Paper in Science 2009. A lake in Ghana, Bosumtwi, showed that for thousands of years there, there's been this like pattern of mega droughts. Not not even a pattern. It's random, pretty random. But there are these mega droughts, some of which are like 100 or two two hundred years long, and they're they're way worse than anything that's happened in modern times, meaning hundreds of years. And they're sitting there waiting to happen, like completely scary droughts. But centennial. Long. So that's yeah. one thing. Yeah. So there's a, path, there's a history, a, a norm there of extreme drought. Mm. So that's one thing. Second thing is climate models, the most recent uh, IPCC reports, are still equivocal on for that sort of Paris-Saharan part of Africa, you know, those countries where poverty is so bad and dysfunctional governments are so bad that they don't know whether it's going to get wetter or drier. So, so, okay, so you have profound drought is normal. We don't know, we, science doesn't know if, if, if greenhouse forest climate change is going to make it wetter or drier. But here's what we do know, that between now and 2050, we're doubling the population in those places. Two, more people, two times more people, at <laughs> least. And by late in the century, it could be even more than that. So when you look at that set of fact, facts, those are facts what's the first policy response you come up with? It's not constrained greenhouse gases. Not for that particular scenario. Right. It's reduced vulnerability to climate hazard, period. Like, man, this is, this is like a ticking. And by the way, you think about that in the context of uh, migration pressure to Europe. The thing isn't, it's not climate change that's the issue. It could be if the cl- one of the models that says drier. yeah, sure. But we don't know that what you do know is that you have extreme vulnerability, you're doubling the vulnerability, you're doubling the risk by doubling the number of people unless they become somehow magically less poor. So make them less poor, find ways to manage water, uh, urbanize, uh, sort of urbanization is your friend, find jobs for people in cities, make sure the, s- the cities have sanitation and function, functional um, uh, systems. Um, that, that could also have a benefit for fertility rates. And it also means that Family planning or, or getting girls through high school. This is why I don't say climate change is the most important thing in the world right now. If you live in that area, you look carefully and rigorously at the science and the dem- demographic realities, you realize that the thing is vulnerability to hazard is the thing that would keep me up at night. And um, that means that getting girls through school, which is the single best path to lower fertility rates, right. or urbanization, which is also... <laughs> Those are the things to focus on.
2: I mean, does that make that almost seems like everywhere you go, climate change is not the thing because there is no we. I mean, it, it, it is, would you go that far?
4: Well, I do think it's really important to look at the circumstances in particular places. Yeah. You know, rising sea levels, in, a, in an area of coastal storms, will always exacerbate the impact of any particular storm. So, so if you're not ingrained, if you're not thinking about that deeply, then. You're missing a a driver of vulnerability. Yes, absolutely. But then, of course, here's the other, you know, inconvenient thing, which is commitment. The system is not, even if Al Gore ran the world starting tomorrow, there's a long period of lag before, of decades, before you could say that there was some, even a perceptible uh, sort of modulation of trajectories of sea level or climate patterns. So that still says vulnerability is job one. Yeah. Even as we do the bigger thing of trying to decarbonize.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess to be clear, like none of this is to take away from the, I, I assume, you know, your your, <laughs> you would advocate heading oh, towards yeah, yeah. a lower carbon future. Oh, I absolutely, mean, right? There's yeah, absolutely. No, not, not to confuse the audience. <laughs> yeah, no, but, no, it's yeah. really important because, Obviously.
4: because uh, you know, especially, you know, then you get into the what Steve Pacala at Princeton many, many years ago called the monsters behind the door, which is the worst case it's there there are these outsized hazards that come with unconstrained emissions absolutely and so you it's imperative to get the world f- focused on how would you do that and that that leads to this whole this is why you know this is the story of a lifetime because it's that leads to all these other questions about energy policy innovation deployment and but again those, those are all that's that subset of the story about decarbonization which is a again a, an imperative but not you know again that's on a timescale that to me is very detached from the time scale of the imperative of increasing uh, re- resilience to hazard.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, so it, it, it's funny, though, because it does seem like uh, a, a lot of the way, I mean, even if we, you know, scale down the problem and sort of... Um, come up with regional, local framings for uh, environmental hazard and risk um, and vulnerability. Um, I mean, a lot of it does seem sort of uh, driven by a certain I don't know, functionality, not, not, not utilitarianism, but uh, I mean, there, there's not a whole lot of like, you know, nature for nature's sake and loving nature. Um, so where does environmentalism come into this?
4: Environmentalism definitely comes into this because one of the questions um, that would shape someone's priorities is how much do you care? Cause I, I'm an environmentalist, you know, I'm, I want to have a functional thriving planet for my, my boys and, um, uh, everyone else, you know, going forward in the century, uh, you have to think about those things. Um, and there are people creatively thinking about those with the time scales and sweep that's necessary, given again, how much of this is going to play out as, that's not in our control. Um, I've written about people who are trying to come up with a, a template for um, polar bear conservation by looking at sea ice behavior and sea ice models through t- 2100. It's pretty robustly understood where in the Arctic there will still be summer sea ice by the end of the century, even with a with a uh, fast uh, deterioration of the overall sea ice. Um, uh, area in the Arctic Ocean. And so the, they've done the mapping and they say, well, here, here's a plan to uh, create a resilient conservation strategy for polar bears by, by looking ahead. It's prospective conservation. You know, Where in the Arctic will, they be, will there be ice that will be good for polar bears in 2100 or 2075? And then you can start to build priorities based on that. It's a new kind of environmentalism. <laughs> the old environmentalism had this sort of faux sense of well, if we get everybody energized Right now, about global warming sufficiently, we'll end up with a really high carbon price, and everyone will just magically decarbonize, and global warming will be solved. And of course, that's not the way it's going to happen. Hmm. Um, but, but there's a role. <laughs> oh my God! You know, among the many, many, many things I've unlearned and learned is um, that uh, all of the. Stances. uh if, if you don't have someone out there pushing for the ideal then we don't we're not going to get halfway to the ideal you know so mm-hmm. overstatement oversimplification is kind of the human way <laughs> yeah really and if you try to tamp that down not everyone is going to end up thinking and reacting and choosing a path on climate change even among people who are really worried about it there'll be um, there'll always be variety and I that's another thing I've written about increasingly is that uh, that's actually probably not such a bad thing. Would the world be better off if, if everyone was at one end of all this stuff? Uh, no. Uh, we do need it all. Yeah. We need to sort of embrace the embrace ourselves, including that uncomfortable reality that we're never – not only are we never all going to be the same, but that that's actually a good thing.
2: It's <laughs> a nice point to end on.
4: Oh, there's always more. But, yeah, um,
2: no, you a, you're a good talker. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I, I, again, here's the thing, you know, I can't stop thinking about this stuff. So it's like um, it is the ultimate. As a journalist or as a, I keep running into scientists who are endlessly energized by this challenge we, we have right now. And, and I talk to young people. The, the great thing about having this ugly kind of X-dimensional problem, which a young scholar at Yale... Kelly Levin years ago called Super Wicked in a paper. It's a mm-hmm. super wicked problem. The bad news is it's super wicked. It's insoluble fundamentally. Mm-hmm. But the good news is that means everyone can do stuff. Like if you're a teacher or an artist or a musician or, or, uh, or a host of a podcast or a or, um, scientist um, or you know whether you're a paleo person or a modeler or a social scientist especially uh, or an inventor, you, you have something to do um, to tweak things toward betterment
2: we're all in it yeah it, so there is a big way
4: in the end there is a big <laughs> we. we are all age sapiens sapiens you know and, uh, as I say in my piece can we live up to the sapiens in our name <laughs> the sapiens we'll find out
2: Andy Revkin uh, what a pleasure thank you for making the time and uh, best of luck with everything I, I look forward to uh, learning more as uh, as time moves on
4: yeah and keep up the good casting <laughs>
0: This question of who the we is when we talk about the Anthropocene also came up in our conversation with science writer David Biello. Biello was an editor and reporter at Scientific American for over a decade, and he's currently science curator at TED Conferences, which is the organization behind TED Talks. David has just published a new book about the Anthropocene titled The Unnatural World, The Race to Remake Civilization in Earth's Newest Age. In his book, David goes on an incredible journey to learn how people are tackling the large-scale challenges we face across our changing planet. Each chapter of his book tells a story of individuals who are at the forefront of developing ambitious plans and technologies to help solve planetary problems. From geoengineering to carbon-free cities to hybrid landscapes and travels into space, in every sense of the word, these are Anthropocene stories. Here's our producer, Miles Treyer, with David Biello.
3: In his new book, David Biello takes the reader on a tour of the planet to identify the critical questions and solutions facing the environment in the 21st century. Like many environmentalists today, he believes that confronting the challenges we face will require a fundamental shift in human nature.
1: The challenges are, are, are not so much in the natural world, but are inside us um, as as people, that it's human nature that requires uh, the biggest change rather than um, the, the world around us.
3: The concept of the Anthropocene is woven throughout the book. This is the unnatural world after all. But while Biello believes that the term itself is useful, he's concerned that when we lump all of humanity into one word, it runs the risk of masking important cultural and political disparities in power. When people say that we are causing changes to Earth's surface, who exactly is that we?
1: And the reason that I think Anthropocene has stuck is that there is a very special subset of people um, who are most responsible for the big, big changes that have happened to this planet in the last 150 years. So if there is a A we that is responsible for the Anthropocene, it is most likely the same we that kind of uh, dominates science uh, of the last 150 years, um, and that that we is is not all-inclusive of humanity. It is a a subset thereof. That said, all of humanity is having an impact uh, on the planet.
3: His book grapples with a theme that we encounter frequently— How do we develop conservation strategies when intellectually we know that the boundary between humans and nature is virtually impossible to define, that our perceived separation from nature is just that, a perception? This has consequences for how we protect biodiversity in a time when extinctions are on the rise.
1: So ecology is a very fraught um, concept where where we're kind of fighting it out on a philosophical level, but also on a very practical level um, around how we're going to keep as many species with us as we possibly can. uh, And what's the best way to do that? Is it to take kind of the vacant lot approach and just let whatever is going to happen, happen? Or or is it a more interventionist approach?
3: Biello believes that one reason we've been so slow to respond to environmental challenges is that we've become too susceptible to doom and gloom narratives. That's not to say that these narratives aren't appropriate, but for him, these narratives have lost our appreciation for nature.
1: And some of that wonder and awe comes from uh, kind of scientific discovery and the rest of it. The wonder and awe, the sacredness of, of the natural world, that's something that we that we cannot lose. And if we do lose it, then, then, then I start to subscribe to some of those doom and gloom narratives. But the idea of backing off of, uh, of technology is hard to see when the problems that we're facing are so large.
3: The role of technology in our solutions to today's problems is another theme that's woven throughout the book. There's a real tension between groups who feel that technology must lead the way, while others feel that it's making a treacherous situation worse. So what are we to make of our relationship to technology?
1: Electricity freed us from so many bad things, and part of the problem that we're trying to solve right now is how to bring the two billion people in the world who don't have access to modern energy into that high-energy lifestyle because, frankly, uh, cutting down forests to burn it for cooking fuel or heat is not a good use of that forest and is uh, exacerbating the kind of biodiversity loss that, uh, that we don't want to see. The forests are regrowing in the United States because we've been able to have industrialized agriculture and uh, the power from coal um, has enabled us to, to to bring back the forests. That's quite a change from, from 50 years ago. And that was, in part, enabled by this modern high-energy lifestyle. And we need to help the world get to that place so that we can bring along as many of our fellow travelers on this planet as possible, at least from my point of view.
0: Once again, David Biello's book is titled the Unnatural World, The Race to Remake Civilization in Earth's Newest Age. Our show is produced by Mike Osborne, Miles Trayer, and me, Leslie Chang. Additional production help this week from Jackson Roach and Isha Salian. If you have any comments or feedback about the show or any story ideas, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you, and you can email us at genanthropocene at gmail.com, and we're also on Twitter at jenanthropocene. Our theme music is by Maserati, and our website is genanthro.com. As always, we want to thank Tom Hayden and Pam Mattson. This is our last episode for the year. Thanks, as always, for listening. Happy holidays, happy new year, and we have a bunch more stories about the Anthropocene that we're really excited to share with you next year. So we will see you back in 2017.